Welcome to Sustainability Now. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz, and during this semi-weekly radio show, I'll be taking you on a tour of environment, ecology, sustainability, and society through interviews and discussions with academics, activists, advocates, agency staff, and maybe even artists talking about their programs and projects and goals and dreams and desires. Our focus will be primarily on the Monterey Bay region, but sometimes we will range as far afield as California and beyond. Today my guest is Thomas Rettenwender, Principal Architect at the Ecologic Design Lab in Carmel, California. And we're going to talk about green buildings, green construction, ADUs, tiny houses, things like that. Thomas holds a Master's in Architecture from the University for Applied Arts in Vienna and is a lead accredited professional. He's taught courses in green building design at UCSC, Hartnell, San Jose Community College, and Monterey Peninsula Community College, among other places. Ecologic Design Lab is an architectural and ecological design lab providing innovative, sustainable, and educational architectural design services in and around the Monterey Bay area, as well as internationally. So, Thomas, I always like to start the, uh, the programs with asking my guests about their background, how they ended up becoming, what they're doing, and maybe, you know, some pointers for people who might be looking for careers or for changing careers, how you, how you got into this business. Yes, okay. Well, um, uh, thanks so much, Ronnie, for inviting me to this, um, this radio show. Um, uh, a little bit about my background. I, um, I was born in, in Europe, in, in Munich, Germany, and um, went through uh, schooling in a few different countries, uh, I was kind of in a track to go to university, and I did have a keen interest in architecture, but didn't really have, uh, didn't know where to begin. I went uh, to study philosophy and mathematics at Trinity College in Dublin, and that was, uh, I thought, sorry, somehow related to architecture in a way, and then um, uh, after, while, while uh Gaining this quite theoretical uh, training in philosophy and mathematics, I, I did some more practical uh, training at the Dublin Institute of Technology, and learned how to draw draw uh, like roof trusses and and whatnot, and um, then went on to uh, finish uh, that degree, and I uh, went to uh, work on the construction sites. That's where. Um, the uh, the pay was quite good, and it was easy to get a job on the construction sites, especially with an Irish accent in Berlin at the time. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I was fascinated by the whole the tools involved in building uh, structures, the uh, the technology, but also the creative aspect of uh, designing buildings. Um, I was quite fortunate, uh, being Austrian, I was able to study architecture at the University of Applied Arts, and the uh, uh, it was the tuition was basically uh, free, uh, funded by the government. So um, um, I was a I was putting my, pretty much put myself through college, uh, covering my own living expenses, but um, but the tuition wasn't there. So um, I was really fortunate to to uh, to have have that. Um, and you ended up you ended up uh, at the Ecologic Design Lab, but but were you a part of one of the founders? And yes. How did that happen? Yes. Well, I um, ended up in California in Big Sur working for an architect there, um, 
uh, Mickey Munich, who did some phenomenal work, amazing uh, design, architecture um, tradition there in Big Sur. And um, that's really how I learned uh, how to build things at university. They teach you very theoretical uh, concepts, um, uh, grand screams. Uh, but uh, at Mickey Munich's office in Big Sur, I really learned how, how to work with uh, the materials. And uh, also very particular to Big Sur is a lot of uh, difficult sites, a lot of uh, steep slopes uh, and topography that you need to work with. So... Um, so uh, after doing my apprenticeship there with Mickey Munich, I uh, started my own firm, the Ecologic Design Lab, um, and that was founded around uh, 2010. So um, yeah, the Ecologic Design Lab has been my, my focus, my main focus for, for nearly 10 years now. And um, yeah, what we do is try to combine uh, the the more traditional uh, skills and services of architecture combine those with an ecological design approach uh, where we uh, consider a lot of the different systems uh, on a building site or on a piece of land and try to, to harmonize and coordinate those systems as, as much as possible. Yeah, I was going to ask if maybe you could talk a little bit about the broader philosophy of green design, what it is, and, and you know, how you approach it, because it's not just a matter of putting up a, a structure with all kinds of certified, environmentally certified materials. So maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yes. Um, so, you know, certainly green building design um, really became uh, a focus um, near about 10, 15 years ago where we were really uh, realizing the, the improvements uh, that we can make in our uh, homes and in our buildings. And uh, yeah, just observing, watching this progress in green building design over the last 10 years has been fascinating. A lot of those concepts have been integrated into the normal building code, the more normal building standards that we now have. Um, however, you know, green building design is not just about being more efficient. Um, it's a lot broader than that. And, you know, I think sustainable design is another good term for it, uh, where we're looking at, um, trying to achieve sustainability. And again, it's not just the efficiencies that we're after. A lot of these building rating systems, they address the efficiencies, uh, energy efficiency, water conservation and whatnot. But um, I think it's a lot broader than that where we, you know, we think about the human uh, body and the human comfort, but also the landscape, um, how we integrate and live with the landscape. Um, Ken Yang uh, wrote this amazing book called The Eco Design Manual, and he talks about, um, you know, he's very, it takes a very visionary approach, and he talks about the seamless integration of the built environment and the na natural environment where um, you know these uh, that we observe and learn and integrate the the natural uh, systems that are occurring in nature and uh, enhance our buildings that way um, so it can it can get quite quite deep and conceptual in you know how you approach how you approach a site and how you install or bring a new structure into into a site uh, a piece of land 
Well, I mean, that, that raises in my mind a question. As you know, I'm, I'm interested in the urban environment in particular because so many people live in cities, right? And so if you're going, you know, if you're, if you, if you're confronted with a plot of land in an urban setting, how do you think about green design? about this kind of philosophy we're just talking about, Ken Yang's sign of view. How, how do you integrate with landscape when you're surrounded by houses, pedestrian houses, houses often? Yes. Well, urban design, talking about urban design is fascinating, and it, it really highlights uh, you, you know, the benefits of sustainable design or ecological design. I mean, in an urban setting, there are so many different systems that you are... Uh, working with, um, rather than you know, in a in a purely natural setting, you, there's a lot of systems with the the land already. But in an urban site, you have uh, a lot of different views and maybe more traffic and uh, more systems, urban systems to deal with. And uh, eco ecological design, you know, that those principles apply very well because you know, like I said, there what you're trying to do is integrate these different systems. Uh, and make them harmonize, make them work together. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, in urban design, it also has a very emotional uh, sort of human aspect to it as well, which we shouldn't forget. Um, you know, it's about um, what happens in a city and what happens when people live close close to one another, what happens with traffic and, um, you know, the just the... the, the the density of uh, an urban environment. Um, but to, to, to continue on that, right, I mean, the other thing about building in an urban environment is the sort of plethora of regulations and restrictions. And I know that you know, cities all over California, at least, have been updating their you know, permitting systems and their building regulations and things like that. Uh, and the required by the state to do this as well, right? To, I wanted to ask you about the, the state of green building in California and the standards, but, but still people have trouble, especially the ones who have to review plans and grant permits, they, they have trouble often trying to figure out what's going on. Do you find that that's a, you know, is that, is that something that, that delays, you know, building a green building? I mean, what, what's your experience with that in that respect? Well, um, certainly, yeah. I mean, you know, if we think back uh, 15 years ago when green building design was kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of new on the scene, I think since then we've integrated a lot of these green building standards and um, also it's become a lot more difficult to get the permits, uh, the permitting process has become more complicated, and it's it's uh, you know it's in, in included many different more aspects, and um, yeah, the uh, you know it certainly is a challenge. I think uh, you know the sustainable design or sustainable des development is often equated to uh, like a zero growth or no growth. Uh, I think um, in this central California, in this area, uh, there's a lot of, I think, I, in my opinion, misunderstanding between zero, no growth, and sustainable uh, developments, sustainable growth. Um, you know, density uh, is not uh, a bad thing. Um, you know, if it's handled uh, in the right way with the right uh, infrastructure. Um, but um, 
yeah, it, the regulatory process has made uh, construction, design, uh, made it more difficult, more expensive. Um, yeah, it's debatable whether it's really made it better. The, um, you know, it's, um, but it's certainly a necessary evil that if we, if we want to live together, build together in an urban environment and in our towns, cities, we need guidelines to, um, to help us sort of coordinate what the, your neighbor is building or, or what, how your town is shaped. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of what I do is sort of navigate the regulatory process and get permits and sometimes people get in trouble for not doing, doing it correctly or not doing it at all and so uh, I try to help them out of that. Um, but but it's, it's almost a process, a science unto itself getting, getting these permits. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, well, related to that, d when, you're, when you're, you, know, you have a design, architectural design, do you encounter trouble when you bring the designs, the, the blueprints, to builders? You know, I, I mean, we have more and more built people who, uh, companies that claim they're green builders. But if you come with some sort of unusual design which has been approved, do you, get off, do you always get what you want? To quote the Rolling Stones. All right. <laughs> well, um, yeah, the... Uh, no, you certainly don't, and I think it's been interesting to watch uh, coming from uh, sort of a, a training in architecture at a sort of a international architecture school. Uh, coming to California, the the a lot of what we build and design these days is really simplified, and it's dumbed down because of budgetary concerns, because of uh, the regulatory process, uh, because of yeah, I mean. You know, I mentioned uh, Mickey Munich, who uh, designed and built down in Big Sur. Um, so he would build his houses, beautiful houses, for $60,000 back in the 70s. And today they would cost uh, $6 million. So mm. it's, um, I think, just the cost of construction has just really, really gone up significantly. So it's really affected our freedom as, as architects and designers. You're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM and ksqd.org on the web. And this is Sustainability Now. Uh, KSQD thanks the following donors for their support of the programs you hear on K-Squid. Shalom Compost, Tim Folger, Michael Lasnabat, Andrea London, Brian Miller, and Jennifer Young. There are many others. You inspire us to give you our very best at 97.0 FM. 90.7 FM, may you also inspire others to donate on our website, ksqd.org. Now let's get back to our, to our show. I'm speaking with Thomas Rettenwender, who is Principal Arch Architect at Ecologic Design uh, Lab in Carmel, California. Let's see. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of, of one or two projects that you've designed and how the process of getting them built was because again you know and and not uh, not something that was really fancy but something that was you know how can i say not more pragmatic but mm. you know scale well um yes um one uh project that we built here nearby is in bonnie dune it's the slot over residence Ooh. and it's uh, it's actually quite neat uh, it was a straw bale construction huh. and um the contractor, Carl Barris, uh, lives uh, close to the site uh, there in Bonnie Dune, and he milled uh, the redwood beams uh, 
uh, on his property and brought them over. And um, the whole house is kind of shaped to, uh, to optimize passive solar gain. Uh, it's in the wooded area, and so the, um, the house is laid out on a polar, polar grid to face the sun as it moves across the sky. And um, it was fascinating. Uh, the project was fascinating because it was a raw piece of land when we got there. And uh, Ben, the, the owner, and I, we uh, camped out uh, in the middle of a brush, a fields of brush, uh, right at the beginning. And it was um, quite a process. It took, uh, I think, seven, eight, seven or eight years um, to actually get the house built um, just because of all the, the infrastructure that we needed to, the well, the water system, and the septic system, the, uh, the driveway, the, the fire hydrant, and whatnot. Um, yeah, apart from the house itself, that took uh, quite a bit of time as well. But, um, but that was uh, you know, just a really uh, wonderful, gratifying experience to, to build a, a, a beautiful straw bale house in, in Bonnie Dune with Carl, Carl Bears. Um, yeah, and um, another project uh, that I've designed that's um, that's quite um, a large scale is the Monterey Bay Shores Eco Resort. It's a, a 350 unit um, eco resort down in uh, just uh, in the beginning of Monterey uh, Bay on the coast. Uh, that's um, theoretically under construction, um, but uh, but I think it's uh, you know it's a longer term term project. Um, but, um, but we've also built several tiny houses, uh, in the past, in the, in the past few years. Um, we've, uh, sort of followed and, um, been leaders in the tiny house design movement, trying to push that boundary a little bit and also, um, working with students, uh, sort of in an educational setting to, uh, to inspire other, uh, younger folks to to take the power tools and you know uh, design something and build it as well uh, so that's been also very exciting yeah, well why don't we we could we can move and talk about tiny houses um, uh, and in particular I know that you're you've been um, working on a project with the Veterans Transition Center out at Fort Ord to build a tiny house village uh, maybe you could say you know tell us something about that and about where it stands and and I'm particularly interested in how homeless veterans play a role in all of this. Yes. Um, so uh, we've, you know, over the past five, four or five years, uh, we've put together curriculum, uh, curricula uh, regarding tiny house design and construction. And we've also reached out to several uh, local uh, organizations. And one of them is the, the uh, VTC Veterans Transition Center, and they um, they have a great history and a tra great track re record of helping homeless veterans uh, in various different forms, and um, they do have some property down in the former Fort Ord uh, area. Uh, Martinez Hall is their headquarters, and they they have several residential houses, and um, they want to expand and integrate the the concept of tiny houses. Uh, I think what's appealing to them is the the smaller units that can be built uh, in a more affordable uh, way, and um, 
They can be installed on the site, uh, maybe even in between the existing houses or in uh, sort of a village setting where uh, these smaller structures are sharing resources, creating, um, yeah, just creating that village sort of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe, you know, in helping uh, homeless uh, folks, the, uh, the community, community aspect is really important to create um, sort of a, a feeling of uh, support and, and community uh, involvement. And that's where the BTC has been very successful in in offering uh, so-called wraparound services where there's a hospital nearby, they uh, help homeless with food, and um, they help them with bus passes and counseling and and whatnot. So um, it would be a great place to to see an expansion of homeless services and homeless uh, housing for the homeless as well eventually even to uh, get folks uh, not only off the streets but into a form of home ownership themselves where they could participate in the construction of a tiny house, um, maybe thereby gaining some credits and eventually uh, owning one themselves and being able to uh, sort of transition into their own uh, ownership of, of a house. And um, we, we should make clear that these are not tiny houses on wheels, right? These are... The, the, I think I thought the ones that you're proposing are, are fixed foundation, aren't they? Or yes. Well, that's um, always that? uh, sort of a question in our minds. Um, you know, the tiny houses on wheels—they uh, are all of, you know immediately classified in a different category, and they come with different uh, sort of complications. Um, the uh, city of Marina, for example, they don't want um, you know folks. Uh, parking on the public streets and living there, uh, and that might be a concern to them, is that if if this house is on wheels, it could end up anywhere, pretty much. Um, the uh, But it does uh, have that added benefit of it being flexible, it can be moved, um, and it's, um, you know, it's just a lot more... Uh, flexible that way that it uh, if it's built on wheels then you know there's uh, it can be on any number of sites and if it's a problem it can be moved uh, down this down the street so I mean is your village going to be a village of tiny houses on wheels or or not that, uh... well so uh, in working with the city of uh, the, the city of marina um, yeah the tiny houses on wheels are too controversial, so uh, okay, we are thinking of the the fixed foundation model, okay. although um, that um, is changing. I think people are becoming more um, accustomed and more open to the this type of housing structure, uh, which is not you know we try to differentiate uh, a tiny house on wheels from a camper or an RV or these other or a mobile home even. You know, I, I really understand a tiny house on wheels to be something that's custom-made, it shows natural materials, it, it really sparks the imagination because homeowners can build them themselves and there's, uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, there's millions of YouTube videos of folks right. uh, building these uh, structures and it's a, it has become a, a bit of a movement and uh, a really a source of inspiration for many looking for affordable housing is to take on you know a tiny house construction themselves and as as we have done too at the uh, at the college and here at UC Santa Cruz as well yeah well I, a few years ago there was a big a big sort of fad about housing the homeless in tiny houses right and the question that i always asked was and where are you going to put them? 
And I don't know that that, that particular issue ever got, um, got addressed. So we're now seeing the city of Oakland has these, uh, these lots with sheds on them. Right and and uh, various kinds of you know various kinds of strategies, especially for the homeless. I don't I don't see tiny houses on wheels as quite as uh, fashionable as as they were, and I think part of that was because of you know so you you know you give someone a house they still don't have land where are they going to put it, and so the the VTC center of course would have the proper the land underneath it right and that's a that seems like a key issue. Um, yeah. But it also brings us to to uh, uh, this sort of you know question of the the general housing crisis up and down the California coast, uh, which is largely driven by the unavailable the the cost and unavailability of land for for new houses and for and even for multiple uh, how, buildings of, with multiple dwellings. And so, have you been doing any kind of work around what are called accessory dwelling units? Yes. Um yeah, um, I have been doing work in that area and I've been following that, uh, the, sort of the progression. Um, I think it was good, a good 10 years ago, the city of uh, Santa Cruz actually had a, had a catalog of about five, six designs. Oh, yeah. Five or six designs that one could uh, pick up and, um, you know, if you liked it, you could, you could um, you know, skip some of the regulatory process and, and um, go ahead and build build these pre pre-established designs. Um, yeah, I'm, you know we're doing one in in Seaside right now, uh, where I live down in um, sort of the other side of Monterey Bay. Um, yeah, and this ADU um, is playing a critical role where um, the main house is um, being rented out as an Airbnb, and we have in Seaside. There's a rule that the the homeowner needs to live on the property in order to rent out the Airbnb. And so uh, the owner has his son living in this ADU in the back and renting out the, the front house for, for, uh, for quite a bit of money for a like, um, three-bedroom house. Um, so the ADU, uh, I think we talked about this already, the, you know, the ADU is supposed to help uh, the housing shortage, but, um, but in this case, you know, it, 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 it does that, but it also sort of uh, alleviates or enables um, more short-term rental uh, properties to, to, to happen. Yeah, well, for reasons I won't go into here, I've been doing a lot of research on, on accessory dwelling units recently. Uh, Santa Cruz liberalized, uh, tried to liberalize its rules about 20 years ago, you know, and then did this, this tried to, to do this project with standardized designs. And my understanding is that almost no one took the city up and that was because the process was so drawn out um, and difficult to get through um, and so the state of California is now mandating various kinds of, of more liberal regulations and um, cities are going to be are or are going to be required to follow them now you know whether that actually leads to an explosion in ADUs there was a piece in the Chronicle front page of the San Francisco Chronicle this morning about this you know this is the solution so it's a, it may end up being another fad unless some of the you know the obstacles can be addressed um, we need to take a take a break so uh, you're listening to sustainability now on K Squid. 97.fm and online, ksquid.org in Santa Cruz. 
I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest today is Thomas Rettenwender, Principal Architect at Ecologic Design Lab in Carmel, California. And we'll be right back after this quick break. What's for dinner, honey? Something special tonight, dear. Squid. Squid? That's right, K-Squid. KSQD Santa Cruz Community Radio on 90.7. It's what's for dinner. Del Durant. And I'm Jean Kratzer. We're the alternate host of Exploring Santa Cruz. Whether you're new to Santa Cruz or have spent your whole life here, Exploring Santa Cruz will shine a new light on the familiar, the unexpected, the overlooked, and the emerging people, issues, and profiles. Join us every other Monday from 3.30 to 4 p.m. on K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one community station. Hi, I'm Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now. My guest today is Thomas Rettwender, Principal Architect at Ecologic Design Lab in Carmel, California. Uh, Thomas, when I read your bio, your brief bio at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that you're a LEED accredited professional. And maybe you can tell us what LEED is and what that means, that you're an accredited professional. Yes. Um so LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and um, it's a uh, green building rating system that um, came out of the U.S. Green Building Council. Uh, it must be a good uh, 15 years old now or so. Um, and uh, I did go through the process of becoming an accredited uh, professional, and I found it um, very interesting and helpful to go through that uh, process to get a really good overview of uh, green building uh, methods uh, that are around um, today. Um, I haven't found it extremely relevant in sort of the uh, the residential uh, construction uh, world. Um, uh, however, I, I did find it to be quite uh, helpful as a as an introduction or an, a good overview of of green building methods. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, like I said earlier, it, uh, lead does well to address the efficiency of, uh, the houses that we, and buildings that we design. Uh, you know, it doesn't go into the, it doesn't take a very holistic approach as far as the, the human involvement or the human, uh, being in, in our buildings, um, and, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, working with the landscape and, um, you know, designing our, our structures, our buildings so that they, they're integrated, um, you know, I, I think it does require a broader and a deeper understanding of, of design in order to, 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 to create a, a successful uh, structure or a structure or a house. You actually made a, a, an interesting point, and it's, it's one that I've been acquainted with for about 40 years now, which is um, that you can do all that you want to design a structure according to various kinds of standards and goals, and if you have the wrong people in the structure, it won't work. <laughs> you know, and there's an old saying, it's, it's difficult to make things foolproof because fools are such clever people. <laughs> and I mean, this is also an engineering problem, you know, basically, you know, you come up with a, a design for something 
that you really think is great, and then you find out that no one wants it. Uh, and so the, the problem with, with lead, I understand, is that it examines systems and materials and the way things are set up, but doesn't say much about how people operate within the building. And I think, you know, my observation is that that's becoming more important. There's a lot of research going on about behavior, you know, human behavior in buildings, especially as it's related to energy. Uh, whether this has actually changed any behavior, that's, of course, another, another question. Um, but California has introduced or is introducing new uh, green building standards. Have you, I'm sure you've become familiar with those. And can you tell us about you know, when they're going to go into effect? And, and is that going to make your job easier or more difficult or, or what? Yes. Well, um, you know, th I think the, um, the green building standards, the building standards in general have uh, integrated more and more green building uh, concepts uh, as the years have uh, progressed. Um, energy efficiency is is a big one. Uh, the zero net energy uh, concept that's um, gone into effect at the beginning of this year. Um, the the new code has started um, this the beginning of this year. Uh, it um, it encourages and uh, demands, uh, requires that uh, new uh, construction uh, provides its own energy uh, through uh, through a renewable source. And um, it's actually quite a game changer because, uh, you know, not only we're not assuming that the energy is coming from the power grid, but we're, you know, we're as a standard, as a rule, we're uh, integrating the, the process of uh, generating that electricity uh, in our homes and our buildings as well. And, uh, you know, I see this going way beyond just uh, putting solar panels on your roof, uh, but we can integrate those uh, photovoltaic cells in our, in our walls, in our pavement, in our, um, in our glass. Um, so, you know, I'm really fascinated by this concept of building integrated uh, photovoltaics where uh, those photovoltaics are are instead of integrated into the structure of the house, not just slapped slapped on in the form of a solar panel. But do the do the new standards actually require new housing to have solar panels? Is that part of the, or is there is that an option with alternatives? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm sort of interested in in hearing about zero net energy, because it's not really zero. It doesn't mean that the house uses no energy. Right. Right. It means that there's no ins external energy coming in from the grid or from, from, you know, via natural gas, right? I mean, that's what it means. Right. Or does it mean something different? Well, um, in practice, what it is is uh, that your house is tied to the electrical grid, um, but it's producing the power and it feeds the grid uh, as much as your house is actually using. So uh, what they're attempting to do is uh, zero out your um, your energy bill or the net the uh, at the end of the year the the net uh, usage is equal to you know to to the, the amount of energy you've produced um, so that's a quite an efficient way of doing it you don't you're not oversizing your your solar system um, and you know I think also if you realize that you're producing the power you, you also become more efficient with with how you use it well, I, I wonder about that. 
about that one because basically the grid becomes your storage, right? And um, if you don't, you know, if you're not extremely conscientious about watching what you use, right, and watching what you then draw from the grid, you know, it's as if you had nothing at all. I had, again, I'm showing my age, but I had an experience with solar heating about 40 years ago at Massachusetts Audubon. And I learned from that, you know, that's where I learned about the, uh, the, the fools and the, you know, clever people stuff, because um, I won't talk about it, but I, I had a, a unpleasant experience there. Um, and so really, you know, you have to, there has to be some kind of measurement system there that people can pay attention to so that they know really what's going on. Um, I imagine that's going to be part of the, uh, the requirement too. Um, going back to this, a couple of years ago, PG&E announced that it was not going to uh, accept electricity from any more solar houses or something like that because there were too many online and they weren't paying their fair share of the grid and it was destabilizing the power system. I don't, you know, I haven't heard anything about that. pg and has much bigger problems, of course. I haven't heard anything about that lately. But this, you know, seems to me to be something that the utilities, the private utilities, might not be particularly happy with. Do you know anything about that? Yes. Um, no, it is true that the, um, the, the status quo uh, utility suppliers, uh, when you start to become more efficient with, uh, you know, the resources and you start to produce them your, yourself, um, then these companies, they they have uh, trouble sort of integrating that. Um, so, you know, there's a concept called the duck curve where, um, you know, when uh, a lot of people have solar panels, there's all this power coming into the grid uh, during the day. And then in the evening when everybody wants the power, uh, the all that power is gone. It's not being produced anymore. So the solar companies are the the PG&E I think is that's one of the things they um, they somehow struggle with is how to regulate and um, regulate all the power coming in and feeding that demand. Um, water companies as well, uh, you know, in in the Monterey area, uh, it's been a big controversy because uh, people are becoming a lot more efficient with their water use, but the the water companies are raising raising the rates regardless because they say you know you're not buying enough water from us so uh we have to raise our rates so it's um yeah these these status quo uh, utility companies are i think are struggling in in kind of you know if trying trying to evolve but having having trouble doing that uh, I, I think that came up in uh in the first show when i was talking to tiffany wise west i seem to recall we were talking about the issue of, 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 you know, rising rates. But apropos that, uh, a couple of years ago, I heard this really interesting thing on the radio, just, you know, at random, that the, the Carmel Valley Water Company was offering basically to pay for most of a rain collection storage tank for people living in the area. And I thought, you know, this is really crazy. The cost per gallon of water is astronomical. Water is still priced practically free. And you're going to start paying, you know, mo more money for water. And then it, it occurred to me that it's really the marginal cost of water. 
and not the average cost of water. Now, this is a, you know something from economics, which is that uh, we usually pay average cost for to, to utilities, which is averaged over a long period of time. But if you start to build a new reservoir, as they would have to do in, in a, on the Carmel River, you know, it costs millions of dollars. The actual cost of capturing a gallon of water is much higher than the average. Right? And, and of course, if people had to pay that marginal cost, they would use a lot less water. So um, this is another one of the contradictions or paradoxes of all of, of, of efficiency, is that um, you know, how, what sorts of logics utilities, utilities start to, um, to pursue. So I mean, what are the economics of all of this? Okay, so we've been talking about green design, we've been talking about green buildings and zero net energy. And the ultimate question is, does it cost more and how much more? Because, of course, if you're trying to build a house or if you're trying to refurbish a house, that's an important question, right? What is this going to add to the overall cost of the project? Yes, well, I, you know, I think I did mention earlier that uh, these green, green building methods that uh, have become part of the building code uh, in this area, they do increase the costs of construction, the costs of the infrastructure. They um, they certainly are more you know they 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 do well to to uh, be more sustainable and more efficient. I, I think in general, uh, however, yeah, there is a cost involved. Um, you know, I think it's it's hard to hard to really quantify that, but um, but. You know, I, going back to the the tiny house movement and the ADU movement of building smaller structures, uh, you know the the and in particular the tiny houses on wheels are are fascinating because they um, they really exemplify this uh, zero net energy concept that uh, we were talking about, where your little uh, tiny house on wheels will probably be producing its own power. Uh, by design, and um, you know the whole question of your so how you how you get power, but also the other resources like water um, and air uh, become a, a big issue um, because pretty much your tiny house on wheels has to be self sufficient uh, because the goal is to be able to to travel with it and um, so uh, you know, how do you factor that all that in uh, to the the kind of the bigger economic scale? I you know it's hard hard to say, but what is really um, evident, I think, is that you know if you're designing a, a self-sufficient structure that uh, doesn't really have an impact on the land, you're not uh, you know digging a big foundation. Um, if you can achieve that, then the impact and the resource efficiency of that of that uh, unit is going to be so much higher than uh, your standard, uh, you know, concrete uh, uh, with a concrete foundation. Um, that's that where the 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 resources are just coming out of the uh, the grid, you know, and you don't even uh, feel or notice uh, sort of where it's coming from. If you're actually producing that power and you're having to store all that water, uh, you know, you really get a feeling for, for the, the resources that you need and how to be uh, more efficient with them. Yeah, but I mean, if you're schlepping it around on the freeway, I'm not quite sure how that balances out. 
Um, we have to take a short break. This is KSQD in Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, uh, and ksqd.org on the, on the web, the ink spot on your dial. I was thinking the other day that radio dial is such an archaic concept. Nobody has radio dials anymore, but there you go. Buddhism, Judaism, Baha'i, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism. Sound interesting? Faith Matters is a unique bi-monthly program that explores spirituality, life, and meaning with local religious leaders. We discuss areas of common ground and also identify distinct differences among diverse spiritual perspectives. Join us on the second and fourth Sunday evening of every month from 6 to 7 as we have thought-provoking conversations about Faith Matters on 90.7 KSQD. Hi, this is Ronnie Lipschitz with Sustainability Now. My guest today is Thomas Rettenwender from the Ecologic Design Lab in, in Carmel. Uh, I was just commenting to our engineer about the origins of the radio dial, that when radios were uh, first commercialized, the way in which you tuned them was to twist basically a variable resistor. Some of you older listeners might remember those. Um, and uh, that was, of course, in the days of, of analog devices. So we no longer need to have dials except as a kind of an affectation. Anyhow, enough of that. Let's get back to our topic, which is about, about all things green building. Um, one of the advantages you mentioned in, in terms of smaller construction, one of the advantages is, of course, is that the building envelope has less area right? So that there's less surface area for energy and other things to escape. But there's also this question of the ballooning size of American houses. Um, nowadays, people design 3,000 square feet, you know, and up. And of course, these are energy and resource hungry places. And someone mentioned to me the other day that the average family of four in the world lives in 100 square feet. So, you know, we're looking at a real difference, right? People are knocking around in, in big houses with, their, you know, very few people. Um, so there's a sense in which, you know, the economy of smaller structures makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other thing, of course, and I'm sort of pontificating here, is that if you've got a smaller structure, there's not that many places to go in it. So you have to get out into the community, right, and start meeting people again. So there are some, you know, other things, other benefits from that. And of course, if you've got these kinds of small structures and people can afford to live in them, they don't have to commute long distances like, you know, from Salinas to their janitorial jobs at the university and, and, like, and, and the like. So there could be some, you know, environmental benefits. There might be some, some costs as well. Um, I, asked, I asked Tiffany about this a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, there's a move afoot. Uh, it started starting in Berkeley, but I think it's spreading across the, uh, the state to move towards electrification of residential buildings. And the, the argument is that natural gas produces carbon emissions. It's still a major source of, of energy in existing housing. And uh, building, re buildings are a major uh, contributor to, to the state's greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, to, to the state getting, achieving its, its goals. And so electrification 
is now regarded as one way of getting, uh, getting off of natural gas. Now, I think I expressed my skepticism about doing that, but you know, I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yes. Um, so I think the, you know, um, the, the general understanding is that uh, if you're burning gas uh, to, to cook or to heat your water, uh, that is uh, more efficient than generating electricity and using electricity to, to heat um, either your house or the water um, or your food. Uh, however, you know, I think it really uh, matters how that um, electricity is being produced um, and it being produced, um, you know, if you do go to uh, an all-electric uh, system, then, you know, that power, the electrical power has to come from uh, somewhere. Um, you know, natural gas is uh, certainly better than, than burning coal, but, um, you know, the, uh, I think the benefits are... A, if you can produce it in a, a natural gas power plant, then you can be more efficient with its production there at the plant. But even better, if, uh, if there are uh, renewable ways to uh, generate that electricity, you're, um, yeah, you're better off in, in, in many ways. So, you know, I think uh, a solar power plant um, feeding a town um, that uh, and that makes perfect sense because uh, once you have the infrastructure in place, the power itself then uh, you know is virtually virtually free. Um, it's a free resource if once the once the system is in place. So um, we also see that in in sort of more smaller scale residential structures or in a tiny house is a good example. Um, you know, once once we have that solar power system to integrate a gas system as well on top of that uh, would be ex uh, a lot more costly and and uh, you know why why do that if you can uh, get those um, benefits from your solar power system as well. Although you remember. And now I'll reveal a secret. When we were building a tiny house down at Cabrillo College in Watsonville, we ran up against this question of how much capacity can you get on the roof of a tiny house versus the demand in a tiny house. And we opted ultimately for, for LPG, for cooking, and I think for heating water. By the way, we never finished the house. But because, because of this question of you know, how much can you actually get on the structure, right? What, one of the things that you have to do if you're living in a tiny house is, is minimize your electricity consumption and as much as possible, right? And so, again, there's an there's a aspect of frugality that enters into this whole idea of small structures, that if you're trying to provide your own energy, um, you do well to not use a lot. But that, of course, means, well, you know, you may have to go without, without some things that you're, that you're used to. Um, what do you see, you know, let me ask, what, what, what do you see as the sort of, what, what sorts of things are you interested in, in designing or creating over the next, you know, five or ten years? Well, um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think these uh, green building methods that we uh, have been talking about um, uh, 
um, they are just beginning to become more integrated into our structures. We, um, I think the trend has been to take the traditional idea of a house and start adding on, slapping on solar panels or a water tank here or there. Um, um, but I think, you know, if we can integrate and, and uh, design these systems together with the, the house itself, uh, we end up with very different looking structures, very different looking um, buildings. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that, uh, that I'm really excited about, uh, pushing that envelope, um, integrating water catchment and uh, energy uh, creation and um, you know the habitat, natural habitat, uh, sunlight. Really working with the sunlight to to um, to to capture that sunlight when we want it, but to to shade shade that sunlight when we when we don't. Um, you know, I think in the next five or ten years, I think we're we're going to see more and more of these uh, buildings structures that that really integrate these green building concepts rather than just um, sort of having them as appendages. Um, well, of course, uh, there is this observation, right, that, that if you look at the entire life cycle costs of a, of a building, of a house, the, the most efficient one is the one that's already been built 50 years ago. And so then the idea is that rather than building something new, you try and do something with the existing structure. Of course, I know, and I won't again name names, I know that here in Santa Cruz we have a, a house that was rebuilt to be, I think, z not just zero net energy, but zero energy. It's a totally passive house. Uh, but it was quite expensive, as I understand, to actually get it to that state. And so, again, there's this kind of irony to, to, uh, to really do these things. You can't be poor. And so, last question that I have here. What can green building do for low-income families? Well, um, yeah, no, that in a way it's a bit of an oxymoron. Green building, you know, uh, tends to be more expensive. Uh, how can it help the homeless? Well, but, um, but I do think that if we th start looking at structures being smaller, more flexible, and lighter on the land, using less resources, and then you know, really integrating not only the resources, uh, but the generation, the generation of those resources in our, in our buildings through solar panels, through uh, rain water catchment, um, through, um, you know, living on a, a, a portable structure. Um, you know, those, those concepts can reduce the cost of construction, uh, make housing uh, smaller and more efficient, uh, and um, you know, have a, make houses housing have a, a lower impact on on our environment. So you know, I don't, I do think there's a lot of opportunities there. There's a lot of resistance as well in adopting these um, these new types of building forms. Um, you know, but I think eventually we'll we'll see see that happening. Um, you know, maybe not here in Santa Cruz. Maybe, ironically, we'll be seeing the more progressive uh, solutions coming from, from other places, uh, but then we'll be able to adopt them here uh, eventually, I believe. 
We have, a, we have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that we've left out? Anything you would like to mention? Well, I would like to mention that um, we have opened up a new uh, event and creator, creation space, the Carmel Makerspace. Uh, it's in downtown uh, Carmel, and we're having our grand opening uh, next Saturday, uh, September 14th, uh, from 6 to 9 p.m., and um, we're exhibiting some beautiful artwork and sculptures by a friend of mine. Uh, we also have a video production office there on site. And myself as an architect, um, you know, I, I, that's where I, um, uh, that's my architecture design office as well. So if anyone's interested in coming, please uh, look us up on uh, the Meetup uh, platform. If you search for Carmel Makerspace, uh, you'll be sure to find us there and uh, hope you can make it. There'll be some live music, uh, belly dancing, uh, some uh, refreshments as well, and uh, some beautiful artwork uh, to take a look at. And the Carmel Makerspace, we're, we're trying to uh, inspire folks to make things, create things, architecture, videography, uh, sculpture. These are all part of uh, how we can get the tools uh, into our own hands and create the solutions that we want to see uh, so I uh, hope you can make it and, and, and join us down there next Saturday. Well, thank you very much, Thomas, for being our guest on Sustainability Now. Um, in two weeks, I'm going to have uh, Tim Goncharoff on the program. He's a zero-waste program manager for the County of Santa Cruz, and we're going to talk about garbage and about the present recycling crisis, which is a result of China's National Sword Program, which has cut off imports of recyclables from the United States and they are piling up all across the country and nobody knows what to do with them. As Pete Seeger sang, garbage, 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 garbage. So until next time, sustainability now. You've been listening to Sustainability Now at KSQD Santa Cruz. Stay tuned for Faith Matters coming up next. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. Everything turned, turned, turned There is a season